Hi, I'm David Benedetto, and you're listening to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. Uh, today, I am on the line with Ilan Mastai. I talk about his new book, All Are Wrong Todays, uh, which is a fun little look at a utopian future, uh, different from our own, uh, and all the kind of hijinks that go within that, with a little bit of time travel involved as well. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, thank you for being here, or, or being on the line, at least. You're not physically here, but... um. I guess to kind of get us started, uh, how, how did this book come to be? Well, um, you know, from when I was a kid, I, I found myself, uh, you know, I loved all this old vintage science fiction stuff. My grandfather, who was a chemist and a sort of scientist by training, he loved old sci-fi, and he had this extensive collection of like 50s and 60s uh, novels and magazines. And when I was a kid, I used to love kind of peeling them off the shelf and staring at these you know, garish covers of uh, futuristic cities and flying cars and robots and all that sort of stuff. But even as a kid in the 80s, I knew that the future wasn't turning out the way these writers and artists imagined. You know, I did not get a jetpack for my ninth birthday. and It seemed like a terrible injustice. Um, but I, I sort of never stopped kind of thinking about that. You know, what happened to the future we were promised? Um, I been working as a screenwriter, working in the movie business, sort of for the past kind of decade, and um, you know I had this idea. I, I think I've been looking around and seeing how much dystopian literature was out there. You know, dystopia just seemed everywhere in our books and our movies and television shows. And I thought about somebody from my grandfather's generation, somebody who really believed in that sort of like um, utopian ideal that technology was going to solve all of our problems, and what they would think if they arrived in 2017 and looked around. And that idea that, wait a minute, what if this, what we think of as the real world, what if this is the dystopia? It's not some far-flung future. We're living in it. That kind of interested me. And um, the more I started to think about it, the more I thought that it would be ripe for a, for a novel to kind of explore this, not just uh, not in a movie, although um, you know I, I love working in the movie business, and, and I am in the process of turning this book into a movie. Yeah. But initially, I, I, I thought what would be great would be to tell this story as a novel where I could tell it from the perspective of a character who comes from one version of the world, this sort of utopian version, and finds himself stranded in our world, what that would look like to look around our present day through fresh eyes. I like it. So uh, are we the darkest timeline? <laughs> uh, well, Tom feels like we are. That's my main character. When he gets here, it just seems like everything has gone wrong. This is the worst case scenario. Of course, as he is stranded, you know, because he's stranded here, he ends up stuck in our world after a time travel accident. And, you know, but as he spends more time here, his initial kind of panic and, and kind of like, oh my God, what have I done? What's going on? Where am I? And he meets these very unexpected versions of the people in his life. His, his family, this woman, he has this romantic connection with him, and even himself. I mean, he's a very different person in this world. And he starts to kind of, you know, even though, it's, look, it's a, it's a page-turner, there's big plot twists and character reveals and, and, and lots of, like, fun kind of sci-fi ideas, but it's also, a, you know, it's about a character who starts asking kind of big questions, like, like, what's the purpose of my life? Like, what makes me actually happy? What gives my life meaning? Because in the end, I mean, you know, we all... Live through, you know, we've all lived through massive technological change and geopolitical upheaval, but really for most of us, what gives our life meaning is the people in our lives, you know, the connections we feel to our family, our friends, our loved ones. So I wanted to tell a story about somebody who finds himself dealing with technological and political upheaval on a grand scale, you know, the scale of alternate realities. Um, but at the end, it comes down to, comes down to people. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. Of course, I think that, that's a good point to raise there. 
Um, in researching kind of these these histories that never were, are these futures that never were? Uh, did you find anything that was so fantastical uh, that just kind of took you aback? Wow. Um, I mean, a lot of it really kind of drew me to this central idea, which is how much of where we are technologically is actually not because of a lack of ingenuity, but it's actually about, about power, like, like literally like fuel. Mm-hmm. Like so many of the things we would like to do, these dreams we've had, these ideas we've had, we don't have the power to actually create them. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't know, I mean, this is like an environmental screed, like fossil, putting aside fossil fuels and climate change and what you think of all that kind of stuff. Like oil and coal just literally don't make enough power to do all the things we want to do. And so I like the idea of rooting um, this massive technological change in an experiment that happened in 1965 where this sort of obscure scientist discovered unlimited clean energy and how access to unlimited clean energy completely changed human society because suddenly just that cold hard fact that we get most of our fuel, most of our power from just like digging stuff out of the ground and burning it. What if we didn't have to do that? What if there was another way? What could we accomplish as a, as a, as a species? So that, that kind of thing, that, that idea that, like, that so much of, of, of what we might perceive as our limitations actually come, to, come down to that uh, was really interesting because uh, I hadn't thought about it in that way before. And, and again, like, this isn't like I go into this in massive detail in the book. Like, yeah. that's just, you know, there's a, a paragraph or two talking about sort of the impact of, of, of you know, um, power limitations on sort of technological change. But, but to me, that was really interesting because um, it kind of just put it all in perspective for me. Yeah, I think so. Those constraints right there, that's, that's where we're limited and that's where we're withdrawn to. And that's our, our possibilities are uh, reflected from that, which is a really interesting idea. You know, I talk about like, well, what happened to my jetpack? But you know, you know what happened to my jet? You could build a jetpack. Mm-hmm. It's just the problem is it would be like a death trap because the amount of fuel you need to put in a jetpack to actually like launch a child into <laughs> like into the sky, the chances of it exploding into are so high because of our fuel is so unstable that it's just not safe. So it's like you know the the, the actual answer to why I didn't get a jetpack for my ninth birthday is because if they gave me one, I'd probably die in a fall of flames, right? Which is not how you want to end Christmas. Exactly. Uh, that's really interesting. I was reading the other day that they just found a way to uh, solidify our, what is it, crystallized hydrogen, which is going to revolutionize how they get uh, rockets into space now and make it significantly easier. Uh, and they've been working on this for the past 50 years. And it's it's strange how, like, those small little things can just change everything. Absolutely. There's something called, and maybe this is what the article mentioned, the, the ideal rocket equation, right? Mm. And it's a lot of really complex math, but essentially it comes down to to get a vehicle off the planet into space, 90% of the vehicle has to be fuel, right? I mean, historically, that's the problem. So when your rocket is 90% fuel and you're burning it as you shoot it up, like, bad things can happen. But it's not just that. It's just that so much of the actual vehicle, you have to fill it up with with basically, like, gas. So if you can come up with something like freezing hydrogen, like another way of creating fuel that's much more efficient, it opens up all these possibilities. Like, again, I'd never thought about that before. So, yeah, when you shoot a rocket into space, 90% of the rocket has to be propellant. (laughs) Exactly. Well, to kind of turn it uh, to a different subject, uh, you were a screenwriter uh, before writing this novel, and you are still a screenwriter, obviously. Um, yeah, yeah, I am. I've been a screenwriter for about a, for about a dozen years. Yeah, my most recent movie was um, a film called The What If. Uh, it was like a comedy which starred Daniel Radcliffe, ah. Zoe Kazan, and Adam Driver. 
And uh, like I mentioned, I'm, I, I did sell the movie rights to this book, very, uh, you know, which was wonderful. And um, so I'm in the process of working on a, on a film version of it for Paramount. I think that's fun. That, that's great. Well, what led you to be a screenwriter in the first place? Was it something that you always wanted to do? It was a combination. I would say that I wanted to be a writer. You know, I mean, from 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 the age where I realized writing was a job, like that was something people actually did. You know, the, the books or movies or whatever didn't just kind of fall from the sky. Like that, was somebody made, somebody wrote them, somebody came up with that idea. It always captured my imagination. Um, but I did kind of fall into screenwriting. Like I, I got an opportunity uh, when I was still actually a college student. You know, a, a woman I'd gone to school with was working as an assistant to a producer, and I ran into her, and we got to talking. And um, she had always thought I was kind of like, you know, like a fun, like funny. And she offered to introduce me to her her boss. Um, and and for me, at that point in my life, you know, I was I, I didn't know how you become a professional writer. Like I wanted it, um, but I didn't know how do you make the leap from wanting it to actually doing it. So I took this meeting and. It kind of led to this opportunity for me to, to work on a movie, which I have to be honest, like at the time, even when I got the opportunity, I just assumed I would be fired. You know, <laughs> like I assumed that at some point I was going to, they were going to realize I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but I kind of embraced the fake it till you make it sort of mentality. So yeah. even though I was like 25, uh, didn't know what I was doing, uh, I just kind of like ran with it. And I, the, you know, the, the work I did, I guess, was, you know, good enough that they, they kept kind of like, hiring me to keep doing more work. And then that movie got made. And so I, I was really lucky early on. I kind of threw a combination of like um, running into somebody. It was a sort of like kind of a coincidence, but also I guess just embracing it, taking it seriously, doing a good job, working hard. I was able to kind of get this very early opportunity. Now, I still have a lot to learn as a writer uh, to improve, but getting that early encouragement kind of set me on the path of screenwriting. And I, I was a big movie lover. And so, and, you know, it was one of those moments in life, those kind of hinge moments in life where suddenly, you know, you go from not knowing what you're going to do in life to suddenly having a career. And, um, and I was, so I, I was very fortunate in that. Um, over the years, I mean, I, I love working in the movie business. I mean, you meet all kinds of, uh, you know, amazing personalities and you, and it's a very, you know, lots of tempestuous people, but a lot of incredibly creative people as well. I had, um, as a writer though, it's like, you kind of want to stretch other muscles. You know what I mean? It's like, you want to keep challenging yourself. And as much as I love writing, um, I'm a, avid reader and I, I sort of, you know, revere a lot of novelists and, and their, you know, their work really inspires me. And so um, when I had this idea for this particular story, I was like, I think this would make a great novel. And so it was a bit of, it was daunting to kind of go from being like, okay, like I have a successful career as a screenwriter. You know, it's like, um, you know, suddenly there's no reason to assume you would, those skills would translate. I mean, it's still writing, but I, you know, I, I have enough um, respect for the forum that I didn't think I was going to like, you know, you, you want to make sure that you can do it as well as the thing you're doing. So, it, you know, it took, it took a lot of time, a lot of hard work to kind of get the book where I wanted it to be, but it, it was an amazing experience getting a chance to write it. And, you know, when, when Dutton, um, Penguin Random House decided to publish it, I mean, that was like a dream come true. Yeah, I can imagine. Did you have any problems, you know, cause screenwriters, there's this, lean sensibility you have to worry about budget you have to worry about how it looks yeah. on the page uh, you have to worry about like how much is going to fit in this one minute of film uh, did you have any trouble like transferring that thought process to a novel where you're like hey i can kind of do whatever yeah more the latter that's why like you know when the book opens it's like you're in this like dazzling techno-utopian future with like <laughs> flying cars and teleportation and amazing buildings and you know space vacations yeah because i didn't have to worry about budgets <laughs> i could do whatever <laughs> i wanted um but no i mean i tried to just Here's what I, the way I feel about it, is you embrace the medium you're working on. So if you're working in, in film, you write the best possible movie, 
right? If you're, work, if you're writing a book, you write the best possible book. So I totally, I want to embrace the form. Um, so yeah, it was, it was wonderfully liberating uh, to not have to worry about budget or anything like that. I just let my imagination run. At the same time, um, you don't want to write something that's indulgent. You want to write something that's welcoming to the reader. I want it to be entertaining and compelling. I want people to keep turning the pages. So it still requires the same kind of discipline. Yeah. Um, it's still the same question, which is, does this sentence have to be in the book? If it doesn't have to be in the book, cut it. You know, does this scene or chapter need to be there to tell the story the best possible way? So I, I think it's the same kind of discipline, but more than anything, it's the form. You know, uh, screenplays are always written in the third person. Um, they're in the present tense. Like you said, it's a very lean writing style. Yeah. In some ways, you're like an architect designing, like you're designing a blueprint for a building, but it's not the same as the building because directors, actors, crew are going to take your script and turn it into a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, a book is different. You know, it's, 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 it's the thing, right? You write these words, and if you're fortunate and it gets published, people are going to get to read those words. It's a much more intimate relationship with the writer and the reader. Um, but it was also very freeing because, you know, all these literary tricks, and techniques that I couldn't really access when I was only writing screenplays, suddenly I, I found, you know, I could do, I could write in the first person. I could, you know, I could use literary techniques to kind of like have certain effects that I, that I was never able to achieve as a writer of movies. Mm-hmm. At the same time, like I said, it's discipline. It's still like, you, you don't, you don't, you don't want the reader to be like, oh, you don't want the reader to feel like you're being indulgent, like you're wasting their time. You yeah. know, one of my favorite writers is Kurt Vonnegut. And he said, you know, he, somebody asked him about rules for writing. And he said, there's only one rule for writing. Never waste your reader's time. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's good. And uh, in this book in particular, it uh, focuses on a love story, which I think is uh, really interesting in the ways that you're going to affect that with the time travel and these differenting areas. But uh, as a more general question, I wanted to ask you, uh, as someone who writes in these two mediums, um, in your opinion, what makes a love story work uh, in a story? That's a great question. Um, you know, it's funny because love stories are this sort of like, um, you know, convention. A lot of stories have love stories, whether even like, you know, it doesn't have to be a romance. I mean, most, most stories, you know, involve some sort of romantic angle. But in a lot of ways, it's actually the, most, the point where you're the most vulnerable as a writer because, you know, most, most readers or audiences, they're not time travelers. They're not scientists. They're not police officers or spies or ER doctors. But everybody is an expert in relationships, yeah. right? Everybody's an expert in love, attraction, flirtation, connection. So anytime you're writing a love story, you're actually, that's the part of the, of the book that the audience, you know, or your reader is going to, um, they're going to scrutinize that the most because that's the part where they're going to be like, that's either truthful or it's not. I either believe in this connection or I don't. And so, but it's also the most emotionally direct part of the story, you know, because we all can relate to it. We've all fallen in love. We've all had our heart broken. We've all made bad decisions because of relationships and great decisions because of relationships. We've all taken that leap, um, you know, with somebody hoping that they might be the one for us. So, and we've all had those hopes dashed, right? So for me, um, what makes a love story work is that you believe in the connection, that you you understand who these two characters are and why, yeah, there's going to be obstacles, things are going to go wrong, you know, there's going to be crises, but that these two people belong together, like you want them to be happy. And and I think even more than that, it's like you see that because of who they, like if you do your job as a writer and the, and the reader gets who these people are, they see, yeah, you know, this person would might not be perfect for everyone, but when my character's in trouble, 
when they're in over their head, that's the person they can count on. Yeah. That's what you're trying to do. I think that's important. And a, a lot of people um, kind of miss that out. Um, it's kind of an addendum to that question. Uh, as being a fan of movies, reading widely, like you've said you do, uh, what are some tropes or stereotypes you see in bad love stories that just drive you crazy? I mean, the big one is just that the love interest isn't really a character. You know, they're just a collection of fantasy elements, you yeah. know, that, that they don't, that all of their decisions, all of their choices, everything they say is just like a mirror to reflect the lead character back at themselves. Mm-hmm. Because that's not um, an actual romantic interest, you know, that's just a character staring in the mirror and telling themselves they love themselves, you know. Uh, I am interested in, if I'm going to write a romantic interest, like to me, your romantic interest actually says everything about your main character. If they're bland, if they're unconvincing, if they're not compelling, it actually reflects back on your protagonist. And to me, even if the reader doesn't notice it consciously, unconsciously they're saying, well, this person isn't that interesting, so why should I care if they fall for them? And what does that say about my main, the main character who I'm following if they fall in love with somebody this bland? So I feel like my job is to take that romantic character, that, that romantic interest, and make them much more than just a romantic interest, to make them a fully-fledged-out character with their own internal life. And sometimes the decisions that character makes can't be convenient for your protagonist, because I don't know about you, but in real life, you know, the people that I fall in love with, uh, you know, the woman I'm married to right now, my wife, um, it's not like every single decision she made in her life or everything she said just perfectly aligned with me and helped me, you know, move forward exactly as I imagined it. No, what's great about falling in love with somebody, binding yourself to them, is that it changes the trajectory of your life. Mm-hmm. You make decisions that you wouldn't have made if you hadn't met that person. So that's what it is to me. When I read a story and I feel like, this, this character is just there to tell the, to my main character what they already want to hear, what they already know, then that's not a really interesting relationship to me. To me, it's somebody that challenges and provokes my main character and forces them to change. No, I think that's important. It's not this mechanical thing that that just comes about. And I think making that look natural on the page is pretty difficult. So that, that's fun. Good. Good thoughts on that. Um, uh, getting towards the end of our interview, I have a couple more questions. Um, sure. One is, uh, what's a book that has stayed with you and you find useful in your own writing? Oh, wow, that is a terrific question. Um, you know, recently, I would say um, Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell. Hmm. Um, because that's a book where it's just the ambition of the structure is really impressive, but even much more so is when you get past the sort of structural trick has this incredible thematic and emotional resonance to it, you know? And so I, I read that book, and I guess I didn't really know what I was getting myself into when I started reading it. And at first I was like, is this just going to be like an intellectual game? <laughs> but as I kind of penetrated it, I, I found it just incredibly moving. And, and so that idea of being both sort of thematically and emotionally ambitious and structurally ambitious, doing something that you could only do in a book, that would only work in a book, but that still had this kind of impact um, that kind of swept me into not just one, but like six other worlds, that's a book that really stayed with me. I, I'm I'm not saying I'm, you know, like, like I, I don't use the same kind of like structural play that Mitchell does, yeah. but you know, it's it's um, it's very inspiring when you read somebody that's operating at that level because you're like, okay, like that's what you can do with a book. Yeah, all these little balancing anything. acts and strings going through. Yeah, it's pretty amazing feat to watch people that can work that make that work. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I think you're constantly trying to get better as a writer. I mean, I, you know, obviously I'm thrilled by the response to my book so far, and, you know, you hope that readers connect with it. But for me, it's like, you know, I want each book to be even better. Yeah. So, um, you know, I like reading stuff by people who are, like, far advanced from where I am. Like, you know, you know I mean, because obviously Cloud Atlas wasn't David Mitchell's first book. Um, that would be too intimidating. <laughs> Fortunately, I think it was, like, his fourth or fifth book. Um, and so, yeah, you constantly want to keep yourself on your toes. No, that's good. Well, Ilan, to kind of wrap us up, I have one question for you. Um, what are you reading right now at this moment, and what's on the horizon for you? Uh, right now, I'm reading uh, a couple things. I'm reading a book that's going to be coming out in a couple months called The Last Neanderthal mm. by um, uh, Claire Cameron, and I'm reading George Saunders' Lincoln and the Bardo, two oh, wow. very different books. Um, but, you know, Saunders is, you know, a master, and you have a chance to read his first novel. You know, he's been a short story writer till now. It's, it's been terrific. And then I'm also reading um, a nonfiction book uh, called Homo Deus by Uval Noah Harari, which is, um, he wrote this book, Sapiens, uh, which kind of oh. looked at the history of, of humanity and how we got here. And then Homo Deus is him kind of looking forward to where we're going. So they kind of, the two books kind of work together. Cool. That's interesting. And um, what about you? What do you have coming up next? Well, uh, I'm on book tour for the next little while with my book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to be appearing in a lot of different cities, a lot of hotel rooms and a lot of airplanes, um, which is obviously exciting. But um, more than that, I'm working on the screenplay for the, mo- for the movie version. So Paramount uh, Pictures has acquired the rights to the book. And so I'm working on the script right now, kind of the process of taking my novel and reimagining it as a film. And I'm working on a new book. You know, uh, I'm, I'm pretty deep into the next novel, uh, which is not a continuation of this story. It's a totally separate story. But, you know, you hope that people who, who like All Are Wrong Todays um, are going to like this one, too. Well, fantastic. We're excited for, for both those things and wish you uh, all the best in your endeavors. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have sort of a more in-depth conversation uh, about the book. I really appreciate it. Hey, no problem. The name of the book is All Are Wrong Todays, and the author is Elan Mastai, who is happily here with us via phone line. I'm glad to get in that conversation. And that's the end of our show. Uh, you've been listening to the Writers Forum on WRBH, which you can catch every Thursday at 4.30 p.m., Saturday at 8.30 a.m., and Sunday at 1 p.m. Uh, just so you know, all of our interview programs can be found online at WRBH's SoundCloud page, which is at www.soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio, as well as on iTunes and Google Play. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.